0: Hi, this is Scott Silkey. I'm the Worship Arts Director here at New Life Church. We're excited that you are joining us today. I pray that today's message will encourage and inspire you to be the hands and feet of Jesus to the world around you. The big idea of today's message is really scripture. And it's this. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. That's Proverbs 16, 18. And then I want to tag this on. When you fall, fall forward. We're gonna get into that. Thing. This is so interesting, and I want to just touch on it because our life group, who goes life group at, at Sanctuary House? Oh, yeah, right on. Uh, life group, we talked. This is it came up as a, one of the topics of our life group, this concept of falling forward, about, about failure and how to move on. And it was right in line with what. Was being taught in First Chronicles. And then I talked to Pastor Ariel about it, and she's like, that's so weird. We're talking about it in a different spin that youth group tonight. So I came to the conclusion that our church is just full of a bunch of failures, and God wants to say something to us. He's, he's, he's drilling it into our heads for some reason, folks. So the title of this message is Fall Forward. Think of some great leaders. Great leaders. You could probably up a hundred names, right? Martin Luther King Jr., George Washington, my favorite, of whom I have many, many biographies, Abraham Lincoln. Think of a guy like Gandhi. Great leaders, impassioned the people, did great things. The thing is, greatest leaders aren't ones who have great speeches or win decisive battles. The greatest leaders provide an example of virtues and qualities of human flourishing we all aspire to. (coughs) A great leader embodies the traits that speak to the human heart's greatest aspirations. They pull us. Not just by giving, my good speeches are good, I'm, trust me, I'm a communicator, I love a good speech. But if the speech is just platitudes, if the speech is just hollow, it doesn't go anywhere. But when they draw you, and they, and they lift you up, and they appeal to your better angels, they become exceptional leaders. How about people who are successful? Think about this, Thomas Edison was one of the most successful innovators in American history. But the man also stumbled, sometimes tremendously. In response to a question about his missteps, Edison said, once said this, I have not failed 10,000 times. I've successfully found 10,000 ways that it will not work. <laughs> In John Maxwell's book, Falling, uh, not Falling, but Failing Forward, that's his book, He said this, before developing his theory of relativity, Albert Einstein encountered academic failure. One headmaster expelled Einstein from school and another teacher predicted that he would never amount to anything. Einstein even failed his entrance exams into college. Students, there's a little encouragement for you. Prior to dazzling the world with his athletic skills, Michael Jordan was cut from his sophomore basketball team. That coach is eating that right now. <laughs> to be the coach who cut Michael Jordan. Even if be stung at that time, you're going down in history as the coach who cut Michael Jordan. Even though Michael Jordan captured six championships, during his professional career, Jordan missed over 12,000 shots, lost nearly forty four hundred games, and failed to make the game-winning shot 25 times. You don't see those on ESPN. You just see the ones he made. <laughs> Failure didn't stop Thomas Edison from inventing, Albert Einstein from theorizing, and Michael Jordan from playing basketball, but it has paralyzed countless Christ followers and prevented them from reaching their potential. At some point, all great achievers are tempted to believe they are failures. But in spite of that, they persevere. How many people have ever failed in here today? Well, I was right. Church full of failures. Good, you know what that makes you? human. It makes you real. When you don't believe that you have failed, there's a psychological problem in there. That's a, that's a deeper thing we got to deal with. And I don't know that it's, it's here, but if you can realize that you have the potential to fail and you have failed, there is a good place to start. The writer of Chronicles spent the majority of first Chronicles describing the leadership of David and each king of Judah up to into the exile. Both good and poor leadership have consequences. They have consequences on people. Not just on the leader themselves, but leaders' actions, whether poor or good, have consequences for other people, both dire and good. So important traits of the former leaders are written about in First Chronicles. The, the chronicler is trying to say this. This is what these guys did well, and we should do, we should emulate, and this is what they didn't do so good, and we should kind of not do that. Failure is one of the greatest tools for success. Put that on a bumper sticker. Failure is one of the greatest tools for success... Because it, if you learn from that failure, you can move forward. Although most of the stories of David from the Chronicler reflect the positive, talks a lot about David's good things, and, and he, really, he really, above all other writers about David, elevate the, the image of David as this king of kings, right? When he does choose to highlight David's mistakes, he chooses the ones that don't just affect him, but affect those he leads. Such as the death of Uriah during the t- transportation of the Ark of the Covenant. He t- talks about that misstep, that, that, uh, that uh, oversight in how, we, how he was to worship God. But he fixed it. And that passage I read this morning before worship, that was his fix. That was after Uriah passed. That was David coming back and being restored and and, and giving praise to God in a proper way. Another one, and the one we deal with today, is in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. And there's a moment when David takes a census of Israel to measure the nation's military might. Now, this is a weird story. And scholars, I scrubbed my commentaries, to find a unified answer of what is actually going on here. So, and and it's really not, there's not a whole lot of consensus. So, so I did a lot of praying about it, actually. And I feel like God is trying to speak to us today, using this story to try to help us to understand what it looks like to fall, fail, forward, okay? Um, So 1 Chronicles chapter 21, and we're going to read 1 through 18, a large chunk of scripture today. Um, And it starts out like this. Satan arose up against Israel and incited David to count the people of Israel. Stop there for a second. Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to count the people of Israel. Now, there's some real debate over that word. When I was doing my research, Satan, it, the, the actual translation here is an adversary. An adversary. An ad, and Satan is our adversary. So it, it's probably correct in both translations. But most scholars tend to think it along these lines, an adversary was, rose up against Israel, f- fueled by Satan, but you got to read this. This is crazy. The same story, the same exact time period, this is what 2 Samuel says. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Same story. And he incited David against them, saying, go number Israel and Judah. Interesting. So what the scholars have kind of done is they've said, "This, this falls into... The classic storyline of Israel. David is leading Israel. Things are going really well. The, first, the chapters before this talk about uh, David's armies defeating and winning over the Philistines and different armies. And they're doing great and there's a prosperity time. It's all good. And what has Israel done classically when things start going well? They start to forget God. And they turn from the worship of God and they start to dabble with idolatry. Every time Israel does that, it says the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel. So most scholars say, this is probably what's happening here. And David is the leader at the time. So it falls on David to figure out what to do and what does he do? He says this, so David, verse 2, said to Joab and the commanders of his troops, go and count Israel from Beersheba Beersheba to Dan and bring a report to me so I can know their number. Joab replied, my Lord, uh, may the Lord multiply the number of his people a hundred times over. May the Lord, the king, uh, my Lord, the king, aren't they all my Lord's servants? There's a lot of Lords in here. Why does my Lord want to do this? Why should he bring guilt on Israel? Now, the scholars are, why is this a big deal? Censuses are taken all the time. Why is this a big deal? Um, and there's really not a good answer in scripture for this. Why is this such a big deal? So we go to the, the realm of like theorizing why this is a big deal. And I, I think we kind of figured it out because of David's response. Verse 4. Yet the kings, he's been warned. The king's order prevailed over Joab. So Joab left and traveled through Israel and then returned to Jerusalem. Turned to Jerusalem. Joab gave the total number, registration, to David. In all Israel, there were 1,100,000 armed men of fighting age. And in Judah Judah itself, 470,000 armed men. But he did not include Levi and Benjamin in the count because the king's command was detestable to him. So here we go. This is kind of starting to get an explanation. David wants to know, how many men do I have so that I can go and I can fight against this adversary that's come our way? And he says, I want to know everybody. And Job's like, wait a minute, the the word of God says that the Levites are not supposed to fight. They're not supposed to do this. And he's I go do it. I want to know everybody. So Joab knew something was up, um, and he didn't do it. He didn't, act, he didn't give David the numbers for the Levites and the Benjamites. So this command was also evil in God's sight, so he aff- afflicted Israel. David said to God, I have sinned against... Uh, greatly, because I have done this thing. Now, please take away the servant, your servant's guilt, for I've been very foolish. So the, the anger of God is kindled toward Israel. David responds to that, and he responds in a very uh, self-seeking way. He does not respond correctly and he, but until the anger of the Lord comes against David, and then David goes, oh, my gosh, we've done bad. Verse 9, then the Lord instructed God, uh, excuse me, Gad, the Lord instructed Gad, David's seer, go and say to David, this is what the Lord says. I am offering you three choices. Choose one of them for yourself, and I will do it to you. So Gad went to David and said to him, this is what the Lord says take your choice three years of famine, or three months of devastation by your foes with the sword of your enemy overtaking you, or three days of the sword of the Lord. A plague on the land the angel of the Lord bringing destruction on the whole territory of Israel now decide what answer I should take back to the one who sent me leadership has consequences when you lead people your decisions don't just hurt you they hurt the people that you lead moms dads your decisions have ripple effects What you do, what you allow, what you say yes to, what you say no to. Business owners, your decisions have consequences. When we make decisions, it doesn't ever just affect us. If you are part of any community, you know this. Your decisions have ripple effects. David's had big-time ripple effects. David answered Gad, Verse 13, I am in anguish. Please let me fall into the Lord's hands because his mercies are very great. But don't let me fall into human hands. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel. And 70,000 Israelite men died. Then God, then, uh, God sent the angel of Jerusalem to Jerusalem to destroy it. But when the angel was about to destroy the city, the Lord looked relented concerning this destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, Enough! Withdraw your hand now. And the angel of the Lord was the, then standing at the threshing floor of Ornon in the Jebusite. When David looked up and he saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven with his drawn sword in his hand stretching out over Jerusalem, David and the elders, covered in sackcloth, fell face down. David said to Gad, excuse me, God, wasn't it all, wasn't it I the one who gave the order to count the people? I am the one who has sinned and acted very wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Lord, my God, please let your hand be against me and against my father's family, but do not let this plague be against your people. So the angel of the Lord ordered Gad to tell David to go and set up an altar of the Lord at the threshing floor of Ornon, The Jebusite. David went up at uh, Gad's command, spoken in the name of the Lord. So, I'm not going to sit here and try to uh, tell you I understand all the intricacies of this story. I don't know why counting the people was so bad. I don't know why God decided to give him three choices. This is how how it played out. I get it just from being a leader. I get an instance, uh, a feeling that it's God's way of saying, all right, you want to make the choices? You want to be the leader, huh, Dave? I'll give you three. Big boy. You think you know everything. But I don't know that for sure. I get a sense that that's kind of the feeling. And then it's not until David sees the air of his his absolute failure on this respect, that he does what the leader should always do, and that is to take responsibility for your own choices. Deal with them. Say, God, don't let this thing continue on these sheep. I'm the one. I'm the one. Put it on me. Put it on me. So much of our culture today is trying to spread the blame of why we can't succeed. I would say this take responsibility for your actions and fall forward. All right. This census displeased God, and David was convicted and repented before the Lord. A census was not itself wrong, but now on this occasion, David seems to have ordered this because he was planning, uh, placing his trust in the multitude of troops rather than in the promises of God. God has been with him every step of the way. Has given him victory over victory over victory. Now one adversary comes up. I don't know what the adversary was. I don't know who it was. It doesn't say. An adversary comes up motivated by the devil that God is using to test Israel. And David doesn't inquire of God. He just tries to figure it out on his own. This record in Chronicles places the census right after a great victory period of the uh, of of David, and a census was primarily to draft uh, the, for the drafting of soldiers and the levying of taxes. That's what a census does. It seems, therefore, that David's intent was to increase the royal power in a way that uh, contrasted with the humble reliance on God. Now, this is I think this is the part that I think God kind of took me down a little path that maybe, maybe a little bit of a sidestep, but I really think it's important. It seems that David, above all these other things, it seems that David is attacking the wrong problem. He's attacking the consequences instead of going after the root of the problem. Every single time Israel went astray, It said that God's anger burned against Israel. If this is the case, and I I think there's good evidence to say that this could have been what happened. They started to forget. They started to dabble in paganism. They started dabbling in these things. And God's anger came against them. And every single time what happens to Israel through the book of Judges, through the book of, is that God sends another adversary to them to humble them. David is the leader. He's on watch right now. This is his job to to watch out for these things. And instead of going after what the problem is, this paganization of of his country, calling the people back to holiness and righteousness, he goes on a military campaign. Even though David does not see the error of his ways, God stood uh, still brings judgment upon Israel and gives David the, op- the options of famine, invasion, or plague. Instead of the adversary of war, David chose what he believed to be the lesser of three evils. A plague killed 70,000 men. And I am telling you, at first glance, it doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem, those, those guys didn't ask to be counted. Hey, count me. Please count me. They didn't ask to be counted. And that really goes back to the statement of leadership has far-reaching impact. Secondly, God's anger is already kindled against Israel before David does anything. David's failure is that he does not lead the people out of their issues. He only goes after the symptoms. And that's kind of where I want to just deal with today a little bit. We are so good at dealing with symptoms nowadays. Um, back about, man, how long ago? Maybe 15 years ago. I'll just say 15 years because it seems about right. I was dealing with s- severe pain. Uh, that, you know the kind of pain that like, it's just like I had a pressure in my head. The whole, My whole head was just... On fire. It was just—it was, just, was just so much pressure, and because I have a history of sinus infections, I thought it was that. So I did what I always did—I treated the symptoms. So I was taking medications. I was, you know, doing the whole—you know, those little like what a like neti pot things. Disgusting. That is disgusting. You know. I was doing everything. I was trying to get rid re- of Because it was, I mean, it was so bad that, like, ideas of maybe putting a power drill to my forehead to release it was there. I mean, uh, you guys laugh, but it was kind of mm, tempting. So we went to finally went to the emergency room. And they said, you have a massive sinus infection. And they gave me more medication. To deal with the pain, to deal with the pain. And it wasn't working. I was trying to deal with the symptoms, but I never went to the root of the problem. Because the problem was not sinuses at all. It was a cracked tooth. It was a cracked tooth. Most painful thing I've ever felt in my life. I think ladies, maybe childbirth a little bit more. But if I didn't say that, people would be like, you've never had a baby true that is true um but oh pain oh man such pain so I finally went to my dentist because some I was it was a it was a pharmacist who finally said you know what I don't think you have a sinus infection this other this stuff would have been working I think you might have a toothache I'll try anything at this point rip them all out I don't care so Finally, got to the dentist's office and he's like, Yeah, you have a cracked tooth. I don't know. He said, I don't know how you've been suffering with this pain this long. It's because I've been trying to deal with the symptoms instead of pulling it out by the root. The moment this guy pulled that tooth out, now it was painful to get the tooth pulled out, but I didn't care at that point. It was gone. The pain was gone. I didn't need all that other medication. I didn't need all that stuff because I had gotten to the root, literally, of the problem. Our society often focuses on symptoms of the problem instead of going back to the root of the problem. And a lot of times, the root of the problem is our own pride. Our own pride leads us down all these sinful paths. Our own inability to submit ourselves to God's ways leads us down all these different paths, and then we we have to we have to do this, and we have to do that, and we try to deal with the issues that are arising now instead of going back to the issue and really dealing with the issue, um, because when we deal with the root of the problem, we learn from the mistakes, the failures, the falls, and we learn how not to rep- do that again. We literally fall forward into a new life. So here we go. If pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall, and we are people who constantly struggle against the prideful, sinful nature, how can we ever succeed? Fall forward. John Maxwell gives seven principles for failing, or for this sake of this message, falling forward. First one is this: reject rejection. Reject rejection. Achievers who per- persevere do their best. Um, excuse me, I'm going to read it again. Achievers who persevere do not base their self worth on their performance. On the contrary, they have a healthy self-image that is not dictated by external events. Who are you? Does your value, is your value based on your performance? And you're, no, pastor, I'm a child of God. And that's true, but do you act that way? Does your performance dictate how you feel about yourself. When you get rejected, do you internalize that or is it just something that has happened to you? When we fall short, rather than labeling ourselves a failure, they learn from mistakes in their judgment and behavior. So instead of saying, I failed, therefore I'm a failure, achievers say this. I failed and I'm not gonna do it again. I'm gonna learn something from this failure. They may fail again, but they're not gonna fail in the same way. Number two, and this is what we kind of alluded to don't point fingers, own it. Own your failure. It's okay to fail. When people fail, they often are tempted to blame others for their lack of success. We see this a lot in our culture today. By pointing fingers, they sink into the victim mentality and cede their fate to outsiders. When playing the blame game, people rob themselves of learning from their failures and uh, alienate others by refusing to take responsibility for their mistakes. If you are terrified to fail, you will blame other people to do that instead of instead of putting it on yourself. I'm going to tell you something. I'm just going to let you know a little secret here right now. God did not design you to fail. Failure is part of the fall. So fall forward, fall into God's grace, fall into God's mercy. You're going to fail. I'm not giving you an excuse. Well, a pastor said I'm going to fail, so therefore I'm going to fail big. <laughs> I'm going to go all out. No, I'm not saying you're going to fail. It's a, it's, it's a part of life. But listen to me, folks. You can't let it define you, and you can't put it on other people. Next one. See failure as temporary. People who personalize failure see a problem, see a problem as a whole. They're permanently stuck in it. Whereas achievers see only the predicament as temporary. When you fail, don't live in it. Don't live in your failure. Move on. Fail forward. Fall forward. One mindset wallows in failure. The other looks forward to their next success. By putting mistakes into perspective, Achievers are able to see failure as a momentary event. Your failure doesn't mean that you have to fail next time. You are not a failure. You've just failed. Right? You're not a failure. You just failed. And we bring that into the, into the, into the scope of morality, failure good? No, it's not good. God doesn't want us to be Im- immoral, right? He wants us to be righteous, and he's given us the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can live a righteous life. But when you do fail, when your pride gets in the way, and, and destruction happens, and you, your haughty spirit comes before a fall, don't live in that thing and, and just throw everything else away. Oh, God can't love me anymore. I failed. i fall. I, I, I'm no good for anybody anymore. I, no! Repent. Say, God, I'm sorry, I failed you. Not my neighbor next to me, not this person. I did it. I failed you. I'm not putting out anybody else. I failed you. Forgive me and then fall forward into his grace and mercy and move on. Don't get stuck in failure. Number four. And it's gonna be a quick one. Set realistic expectations. Okay, set realistic expectations. I sit across the desk from people sometimes, and they tell me what they're they're planning on doing. I'm like, "Yeah, that doesn't seem like a good idea. <laughs> it, it just seems it doesn't seem realistic. Why don't we take? What if you took a baby step first before you take you know your your evil can over the Grand Canyon? I've never ridden a motorcycle before, but I'm going to do this jump over the Grand Canyon. Well, just you know." set expectations, do things in a sequential way so that you can deal with the consequences of those little setbacks rather than going big. Number five, focus on strengths. Now, this is a big one for the church. God has given every single one of you gifts. And Annalisa's gifts are not Alberta's gifts, right? Alberta's gifts are not Darwin's gifts, David's gifts are not my gifts, and likewise. So here's the thing. Lean in to the gifts that God has given you. Be true to the person that God has made you. And and stop looking at other people and saying, well, I wish I had their gifts. I wish I had their thing. Lean into your strengths. You'll have more success than you uh, expect. Number seven, and this is the big one. Ready? Uh, We didn't do six yet. Well, I don't like six. No, no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) It says this, uh, another quick quick one. This is Maxwell saying, very approaches to achievement. Don't put all, basically he said, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Don't, this is more about like leading a company or things like that. So that's why it's kind of quick. Number seven, this is a big one. Bounce back. Bounce back. You don't have to own that failure forever. David didn't. He made a big mistake. I don't really even understand the scope of David's mistake. I don't know why Joab was so upset with David. I don't know. It doesn't really tell us. We have to make some inferences here. It doesn't really tell us what the... But it was a big mistake. had huge consequences. But what does David do? He bounces back. Rehashing missteps and blunders for too long sabotages concentration and eats away at self-confidence. When dealing with failure, achievers have short memories. They quickly forget the negative emotions of setbacks and press forward resiliently. While taking a pause to learn from your failures, achievers realize that the past cannot be altered it's in the past fall forward it's in the past don't doesn't mean you should forget it but don't let it define you David is hailed by history to be the great king and it is not because he was perfect or made all the right choices It was because he was a man who was consistently pursuing the heart of God. The Bible calls David a man after God's own heart. He he consistently pursued the heart of God. And he made mistakes. And he learned from those mistakes. And he moved on. Some of his mistakes are big leadership mistakes. Some of them were personal mistakes. Big time personal mistakes. But they didn't affect the entire nation. They just kind of affected him. But that did not taint his... His legacy, because he didn't let it define him. What defined David was the passionate pursuit of the heart of God. When he failed, when his pride got the better of him, and he fell, he learned from his mistakes and moved forward. A man or woman after God's own heart will fail and fall. Let's be realistic. We'll make mistakes. We'll get duped sometimes. Somebody will take advantage of us. It's going to happen. We can't always see everything that's coming. All we can do is our best with the data that we have. And we have to understand that we're prone towards pride. So they will fail and fall. But the man and woman of God will always fall forward into God's grace and restoration. There's two parts. They fall forward into God's grace. That's huge. Fall forward into the arms of a God who died for that mistake. Who died for that blunder. Who died for that moral failure. Who died so that you don't have to die in that mistake. And I've seen a lot of Christians who live in that space and that's okay. But they've never moved into the restoration part. They're actually they 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 they, they they're willing to accept God's grace but not as healing. So they don't feel worthy of doing anything for God or or moving forward into God's purpose for their life. They just feel, okay, I just got to live in God's grace because this is the only place. They never want to put themselves out there again. They never want to be restored. They never want to go anywhere because they still feel the guilt of that mistake, that failure, that fall. This is what I'm saying to you today. Don't let your past failures Become your present reality. Don't let your guilt hold you back from the great things that God has for you on the other side of restoration. Let God not only save you, but heal you. Do you realize that you, if you if you are in Christ today, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Christ has beaten Satan in your life. It's over. It's done. So what is, Satan, what is Satan's only play left on you? To keep you as ineffectual for the kingdom of God as possible. To beat you down and keep you low so that you just live in this place of, oh, I'm saved, but I'm not really worthy. I think Satan wins a lot in the church because he keeps people down. He can't steal their soul anymore, but he can keep those people from being effective for the kingdom. Let that not be said of New Life Church. Let your failures guide, teach you. Realize that they are in the past and cannot be changed. Accept the grace of of your God and King who died on a cross to save you from those sins and failures. And then fall forward. Move into the restoration of Jesus Christ and let's be effective Christians, witnesses, in spite of who we are, in spite of our imperfections, let us be uh, messengers of grace and truth and mercy and love and move forward. You get me? You hear me today? Don't let Satan have victories in your, even in your Christian life. That's crazy. That's crazy! He's been defeated. Don't let him have victories in your life. That's crazy. Move on and let God take you to the next level that he has already planned for you. Lord, thank you for this opportunity we have today to to talk about our failures, to talk about our propensity towards pride. God, I pray, Lord, that you would humble us before the mighty throne of grace. Lord, that you would give us a a understanding that sin is really sin, and it is it is a falling and a failing. But God, you don't want us to live in that. And you don't want us to take every moment of failure and, and let it eat away at our soul, Lord. You want us to, to to repent, to come to you, and find grace and help in the time of our need. And then you want us to to uh, be restored into the life, into the message, into the, the commission that you have for us. And Lord, we want to be... Uh, We want to thrive in you. And Lord, I pray right now that you'd be with my brothers, that you would be with my brothers and sisters today, that you would give us the ability to understand what you have for us. It's a good, it's good. It's a good thing. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. Go with God, be victorious. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. If you want to find out more about New Life Church, you can connect with us at discovernewlife.org. We hope to see you soon.